Hello, welcome to this week's HSJ Health Check podcast. I'm Dave West, HSJ Deputy Editor, and each week on Health Check we gather a cast from our team of expert journalists to help explain and debate the most important news issues right now in NHS policy and leadership. And it's all been happening this week. It's been our busiest week for visitors on the hsj.co.uk website for some months. Part of the reason for which is the publication of the NHS Operational Planning Guidance on Thursday for the financial year ahead. And that's what we're going to talk about today. I'm joined to do so by Rebecca Thomas, our mental health senior correspondent, Annabel Collins, senior correspondent for Workforce, and Lawrence Dunhill, Bureau Chief for Finance and some other things. We're going to cover the headline areas of our from our analysis of the planning guidance um, across finance, performance and delivery, workforce and integration. And as ever, we try to focus particularly on things that have changed um, this time from, from previous rounds of guidance and previous rules that the NHS is working with. And we're going to start with finance. So, Lawrence, on the face of it, the reforms to the financial regime, which um, one of which um, we we broke, you broke earlier this week, um, and some of others of which were announced yesterday, they appear on the face of it to represent quite a substantial change to the to the to the financial regime the NHS works within. Is that right? Yeah, I, th- I think that there are certainly two uh, sort of policy changes that feel pretty significant. Uh, One of them is to link half of the financial recovery fund uh, that that's the sort of the new name for the for the big pot of central incentive funding previously named the uh, STF or uh, PSF. Um, And so half of that is going to be linked to the performance of the system rather than the organization. Uh, so previously, if if your trust uh, has hit its control total, then you've you've got all of your central funding. Uh, but now half of that uh, will be held back and only paid if this if your uh, system, so STP or ICS, hits its control total. Um, and uh, and the, the the kind of idea behind this is to try and get organisations to plan more together. Um, ra- rather than kind of go all going off separately and, and drawing up saving plans um, that, that might result in a saving for them but a cost to another bit of the system um, by getting everyone around the same table and working to the same plan uh, you, you hopefully actually take out real savings from the system that saves the NHS money overall. Mm. And what do you think the reaction from the provider sector, finance directors and, and chief execs will be to these these changes? Uh, it will be as ever. It will be mixed, but um, I've, I've, uh, a few people I've spoken to are kind of broadly positive that this has been the direction of travel for a couple of years now, and some of the more advanced uh, systems, the the ICSs, have have kind of dipped their toe in the water of doing this sort of thing already and linking some of the funding to to central planning to to the uh, system control total. Um, so broadly, I think pe- people are on board with it, but it obviously will be difficult in some areas where um, a tr- uh, w- one trust, say, um, is willing to sign up, but then their neighbour isn't up for it, and that means they they might get uh, that they might miss out on their FRF. Yeah, I was hearing from someone in a in a big 
system with quite a few substantial sized acute providers saying that we really feel we have no influence on the performance or delivery of finances on on some of these trusts on the other side of our patch um you know big london sector um you know how can we what 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 does it achieve by trying to pretend that we do have some role in that um, so there's a frustration there yeah. Do you, as you said, it's, it's although the numbers are, are probably getting bigger in terms of the amount of money that's staked on the system, that direction is is similar to, to recent years, as you said. Do you, and, and I remember a planning guidance a few years back, possibly 2016 or 2017, where the, the National NHS England directors, their message was, you know, you're going to providers, was, you are going to suffer if you don't work as a system. You, these rules mean you will be increasingly, um, you, the, the noose will be tightening around your neck if you, if you don't behave as a system. Do you get the impression that, do you feel that providers are sort of increasingly getting that message that these incentives are working in that direction? Again, broadly, yes, um, but in in some health economies, particularly in the northwest um, that I cover in, in places um, like Manchester, there are still kind of big uh, rivalries between some of the organisations who who s- simply because of the the kind of legalities and how organisations are still set up as as separate entities um, aren't engaging in this sort of stuff. Mm. and um also the fact that although they say well we're going to tighten the i don't know would you disagree with this although the threat is we're going to make you suffer if you if you don't work as a system i mean they do actually need these organizations to balance so they, they, their ability to hold back vast amounts of money is 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 not is is quite restrained by the fact they do actually want places to be getting back into balance and surplus anyway yeah it's, it, and it's difficult because ultimately hospitals and trusts need need this cash just to keep ticking over and 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 in lots of places if they're not getting their FRF then they're just going to be re- requiring a, another sort of bailout um which w- which kind of links in with the other with the other big uh policy that was alluded to in the planning guidance but didn't actually f- kind of make it into the final document because they're still um kind of nailing down the details with with the government and that's over the uh 10 billion worth of uh cash loans that that providers have drawn down over the last five years um just just to maintain their their uh their 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 payroll and uh payments to suppliers um the everyone's known really that these that these uh, loans are never going to be able to be repaid for in in, in most cases, um, and so there's been a question of what to do with that um, debt, whether you can just write it off or not, um, and the message that would send. Um, and what's going to happen is it uh, is it's going to be converted to uh, something called public dividend capital (PDC), um, which is treated as a sort of investment in in organisations by the government. Uh, but it does attract an annual charge. Um, typically, that's three point five percent, which might might actually be more than the interest that some trusts have been paying on their loans. So, in the short term, they, they might they might be worse off. Though we don't know what the what the annual charge is going to be set at. So, so that's obviously something to that they'll need to nail down. Um, and in, in 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 practice, it sort of won't make a great deal of difference. Um, 
in the short term it's because we're kind of talking hypotheticals here because ultimately trust will always be given more money to because they can't close the hospital um but what it what it does mean and may, will make a real difference to is it, it might speed up the the, the mergers of organizations because um i'm certainly aware of a few cases where the the big uh, debts held by some organizations has has uh, has put um, a potential partner off taking them over and so clear clearing these debts c- can pave the way for um, mergers and takeovers mm, okay they'll help it's the basis for transformational change yeah um thanks um i think we'll probably return to some of the some of those points uh, as we talk about other areas but i'm going to move on now and talk about performance um uh, performance measurements and uh, metrics and delivery in the new planning guidance and core targets um thinking about actually the a&e target and elective care uh, target and and cancer delivery targets are, are kind of a particularly sort of sensitive and controversial topic at the moment, especially A and E, because of the proposal to um, scrap uh, setting aside cancer, which we, the plans have already been decided for. But particularly on A and E, the proposal to scrap the target now that hasn't been finalised. The the review of that is due to report in uh, March or April. Um, but um, it leaves the system, uh, when publishing operational documents like this, in a bit of limbo, not quite sure what to say about delivering on the emergency care target. Um, and the decision the system leaders um, have, have made at the centre this year is to focus on beds um, and growth of acute beds and seeking to, by keeping open um, more beds than usual in hospitals, to seek to reduce bed occupancy, which will enable hospitals to run more smoothly and potentially to improve accident and emergency performance. The planning guidance doesn't refer explicitly to the four-hour target, but it does say that um, providers should expect to improve their A&E performance overall um, without saying against which um, particular measure. And it's not totally clear. One would assume that they can't actually change the A&E target as late as close as this for 2021 uh, but it's not it does slightly leave open the possibility of, of of that still happening in the guidance the issue of course with beds is is the ability to do that and to fund it and we'll talk um, in a little bit um, about the workforce constraint um, but also um, financially speaking beds are normally closed throughout through the rest of the the year when it's not winter in order to reduce costs and um, it's not absolutely clear whether uh, financial plans so far account for being able to keep beds open all the way through the year on elective care uh, the planning guidance asks for the overall waiting list to be cut, uh, which, as has uh, other guidance uh, guidance in in recent um, other recent years, so it's not absolutely clear whether that's going to start happen happening. And again, a focus on very long waiters, fifty two week waiters. What the quite big question really is whether this is the year that performance is going to change direction the performance on both a and e and elective care measures has just got worse and worse and worse for many years now successively you would um assume that however they measure it the government is going to want to see a change of direction on that in the next uh, during this parliament 
even if it's not uh, towards me actually meeting the targets, it's going to want to see a change of direction. And the question really is whether this is the f 2021 is the financial year when we start to see that. I'd suspect that um, given given the continuing poor performance this financial year, um, a leap up to, to improvement through this year and next winter is reasonably unlikely. Another important thing to say uh, about all this is that while we're focusing on what's new uh, and what's changed in the guidance, the planning guidance also confirms a focus on a number of the long-term plan, getting on with a number of the priorities that are prominent in the NHS long-term plan from last year. Um, stuff like on um, community services, cancer, aspects, other aspects of prevention and um, early diagnosis, um, mental health. Um, it does, if, if you're detecting a um, tone shift away from some things that were strongly emphasised in the long-term plan but are feature a, a bit less or more differently in this year's guidance, um, they've had to dial back on some of the primary care delivery linked to primary care networks um, because there's an ongoing row with the BMA about what primary care networks can be asked to deliver in 2020-21. Um, there's not a great deal about integrated personal care, for example, um, which is linked to primary care networks, and also not a great deal about um, the maternity and children programs and some of the other programs. Perhaps that's just because their, their delivery um, focus is, is in other future years. There is a bit of a shift this year compared to last on um, on reforming outpatients and the desire which was, was set out clearly in the long-term plan but, but not really operationalised much over the last year to try to reduce um, so-called avoidable outpatient um, appointments by moving them to digital or avoiding them altogether, um, getting GPs to deal with the issues and things like that. And one um, interesting rule change um, that Rebecca Thomas, um, our um, newly promoted senior correspondent for mental health, um, spotted was in relation to learning disabilities where um, where there's been a, a very large focus that we've talked about a lot on the podcast on failures in inpatient learning disability services over the past year or so. And NHS England seems to be recognising this in the planning guidance, Rebecca. Yes, sir. Uh the NHS England seem to have started finally to listen, um, listen to what's being said about the commissioning of um, uh, LD inpatient units. Uh, in the in this year's planning guidance, commissioners have newly been told that they will uh, have to uh, have to arrange visits for any children um, they've sent out of area. Um, into an inpatient unit every six weeks and every eight weeks for any adult out of area. It's This will probably have quite a significant impact on CCGs in terms of uh, how practically they're going to do this. So NHS England can confirm to us that it would be the funding CCG's responsibility to do the visits. So uh, <laughs> you can envision a world where you've got... Um, commissioners being sent all over the country every six to eight weeks um does some does some do it already rebecca under the transforming care program um regular visits will have to take place it depends on uh what the what what actually happens on those visits whether um a, where a treat a treatment review is being done so is the commissioner talking to the clinicians and uh um, the patient on that visit about progress is the um, the general 
um, idea of these regular visits is to to plan for them to come home and see how their care is going. Um, but the fact that um, CCGs will now be required um, to do it regularly, so there isn't there wasn't really a set time for them to do it um, under the transforming care program, which is something that had to be done. Um, is is stronger, but um, as with these documents, the more questions are raised than they are answered. So, like I said, how how a commission is practically going to do these visits? What will the visits entail? Will they just be a tick box tick box mm. scheme? You could do a can of worms. Uh, I'm opening a bit of can of worms. We probably can't all discuss about discuss now, but it's it's kind of based on the assumption that commissioners don't know that the people are placed in um, services that are sometimes rubbish. Um, you know, they may know. There's just not a lot they can do about it because often, you know, it appears that quite often the cases commissioners actually have to persuade the providers to take people. You know, it's not the case that they're just sort of um, sitting there and forget, you know, forgetting about it in all cases. Um, although there are there is also some evidence of that. Yeah, well, there's probably evidence of some patients being left to languish and being outside and out of mind. Um, and yes, there isn't a lot. Um, a CCG can do sometimes in terms of getting them out but I think where this rule is important is that it um, it places a responsibility on the on the commissioner to think about <laughs> think about the quality if, they, if, you, if you're having to go and mm. visit these units regularly then they're not out of sight gives out NHS of England something to say when they're next asked about this at a select committee or something like that yeah so. I mean it, this for they for we know this could be something that's coming out of the task force uh, conversations that are going on right now. Um, again, we don't know how it's going to be worked out. Our commissioners that I've spoken to are kind of scratching their heads um, at it, really. Uh, so we will see. <laughs> All right, thank you. Um, and workforce. Um, so Annabelle um, Collins also newly promoted to senior correspondent this week. Um, the workforce um, wasn't anomalously prominent in the in the planning guidance, which you you can ex- explain why. But it is it is they, they did sort of, despite not having particularly anything new to say about it, they, they um, NHS England directors at their board and and in the guidance kind of are at pains to kind of stress that we still think it's really really important because it and particularly that it does underpin some of what we've we've already talked about about getting beds open and delivering on all, all the mm. kind of priorities. Yeah, absolutely. Because obviously, you know, there's no point opening any new beds if you don't have the staff there to to man them <laughs> um i think um well the reason why there wasn't an awful lot of detail on workforce is because we are expecting the people plan to be published and there was confirmation in the planning guidance it would be published um march april time um which is um you know a lot later than we were expecting um i was originally told it should be expected in the first six weeks of the new year um but i think this this relates to the budget um as per a story we published last week um kind of emphasizing that it should be published shortly after the budget on the 11th of march um so yeah i think something that kind of um jumped out at me at a jumped out at me um, in the guidance on workforce was just kind of the emphasis on um, the the need to um, achieve the 50,000 um, more nurses pledge again. I think maybe that could have kind of been NHS England holding the government to account on a, on a promise um, and the emphasis again on international recruitment being really important mm. and um, retention as well. Mm. Um, kind of interestingly in quite a, 
um, a final draft of the of the guidance, but not the final 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 draft. Um, there was a, t- a ten thousand ambition for ten thousand um, nurses this year, uh, <laughs> but that actually was was not in the final Mysteriously document. Yeah, it was interesting. And, and someone I spoke to said, "Well, because it's probably impossible." Um, <laughs> which you I wonder how it made it in. Well, I know exactly. There's plenty of other impossible stuff in there. <laughs> well, very, exactly. Maybe if it's just one one too many impossible things. Um, but I think that the trouble with people is that you can't you can't magic up people and um if a big lever is international recruitment i was just talking to somebody today about how complicated the supply chain is when it comes to bringing people in from abroad it can involve a trust and multiple different agencies and it takes a really long time um so that you know if you start recruiting for somebody at the beginning of the year you're not necessarily going to have them until the middle of the year mm. um even later perhaps um there's one thing i sort of detected in there there is a hint at a sort of more strict performance management of this um kind of collaborative approach to international recruitment yeah I, you know you've got to do it through a and select a, a kind of a host trust who's, yeah, who's like going to set up provider. a proper pipeline kind of thing yeah. and i don't think it said you know you must um in the kind of full-on way we're going to come around and check and punish you if you don't do that but it, it was written in such a way that you, people will get the message that this is good they are soon going to be saying you must do it that way mm. um it seemed to mm. me and yeah. i think that kind of um yeah that came out as well in the um international recruitment toolkit that was published pretty recently as well kind of encouraging trusts and organizations to work together to recruit um and that was kind of i think that was emphasized in this as well um which I suppose links quite nicely to the kind of the integration agenda at the moment as well. Um, there was a, there was another thing that sort of jumped out at me from this, which was um, it was quite a brief mention, but the um, mention of the apprenticeship levy um, and setting out that over seventy percent of it hasn't been used to the NHS hasn't been used by the NHS um, over the last twenty four months, which was sort of the deadline given to use it, and that money has now gone back to the government. Um, so the NHS has been paying into the levy pot, but they've not utilised the levy, which sounds it sounds like a terrible waste um but i think um it was it was kind of quite clear in the guidance that um they're expecting trusts to kind of i think the word they used to kind of embed the levy um into their kind of workforce planning and to get more people in um kind of at the start of their their career path into the nhs why aren't trusts using it it's mainly i think it's because of the lack of flexibility um and the fact that um you can only share 25 percent of it with other trusts and it expired within 24 months which is isn't very long really um and um the fact that you can't use it to um you can't use it to pay for backfill so um paying for the salaries of staff that are brought in um to cover for people when they're doing trainings and things like that so um it sort of it was quite critical of it but there were, weren't any solutions which i can imagine would be a bit annoying um do you think yeah. trust might be quite annoyed by I the think, yeah i mean i think trusts and um, nhs employers and nhs providers have been quite clear in their criticisms of the levy um i think it's obviously not necessarily within the gift of um you know nhs england or the dh to sort out it's a wider government policy than just the nhs so um i think yeah it it needs to be looked at quite urgently okay thank you and i was interested in the wider government seems to be taking an interest in in fixing the apprenticeship uh, approach to apprenticeships as well um, and moving on to our final uh, headline of integrated care and systems working in the um, in the planning guidance, and and it's something that um, again the authors have tried to stress. Um, you focusing on this fa- phrase of working as system by default, uh, and the biggest kind of um, hard lever around 
which is um, what Lawrence has already talked about, connecting um, 50% of support funding to, to system performance, making it harder for any single trust or CCG to ignore. Um, they've also talked about various things about developing um, the formalities of integrated care systems, um, gradually building up their leadership and responsibilities and um, trying to um, settle on the the leadership. There's a phrase about ensuring ICS leaders have the um, capacity to, um, to to take on what are the kind of increasingly complex roles, and I'm interested um, in a sec to ask you, Lawrence, about the the f more a bit more about the financial aspects of that. How how people out in the system are sort of dealing with the fact that integrated care systems or STP leaders are now being asked to make you know these big kind of uh, uh, financial allocation decisions, potentially with with sort of very small staffs and very sort of uh, vague accountabilities. Um, and also thought I could just ask. Um, uh, we could all have a think about particular the, the expectation in the planning guidance um, that all areas will be working in this way as a system and um, working um, from April next year being classified as an integrated care system. Just interested in in all of your take of sort of particular SDPs in your patch about how how ready or able they appear to be to be to sort of jump to that kind of working collaboratively as a as a single system. Um, if anybody's got. A thought on that um but um but firstly lawrence about see so this i was just uh, when i've um worked with sdp leaders and integrated care system leaders in over the uh, in recent um months and years they there's some of them uh, some of them this doesn't apply to but many they don't sort of feel in the poise to make these kind of uh, as a single individual to, to, to responsibility to make big decisions about the allocation of capital and now discussion in this planning guidance about giving them growing revenue allocations um, these people have not been formally recruited as a chief executive in ICS they're kind of they've been sort of either been persuaded to do it or sort of their peers they're the person who their peers are willing to let do it and they don't have big staff who can kind of do the analysis to pick up back up sort of capital allocations and things i just wondered if you'd if you'd got a sense out in the finance community of of, of how ready how, how ready people thought they were to make these decisions yeah again, again there would be a lot of variation between different areas and just thinking about the northwest where i cover you know that in greater manchester which is um you, you could say one of the mo the more advanced systems which has a very kind of um uh, uh, mature structure um at the gm level um even there i i think i think the the kind of influence that the that the regional team had over organizations finances was very limited because you you have you've got such powerful big provider trusts in in greater manchester uh with people who have been there for years and years and 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 were always going to carry on doing their own thing um in lancashire it's again a bit a bit different you've um you've got amanda doyle leading the system um, who, who probably has a bit more sway that the, the the provider trusts aren't as aren't as powerful as they are in Manchester, and and they've now got um, one chief exec leading two trusts. So I think then depending on the relationship that that uh, that chief exec Kevin McGee has with the system leaders, um, it, it, that that would that would kind of um, decide how how much influence they have. Um, 
and then Merseyside and Cheshire it, it just simply doesn't doesn't or hasn't until now functioned as one as one system at all because yeah. because it, it's so big and unwieldy um and, and but in both cases if they am I wrong about I might be out of date on Cheshire and Merseyside but in both cases they don't have a nominated executive leader yet a, a substantive well there, it was or. Mel Pickup but she's just she's just yeah. gone to Bradford um and so they're in the process of, well, yeah, she of went before Christmas so sort of like you know yeah. the idea of but handing over hundreds of millions of pounds, um, you know, who is actually going to make that decision? Um, some people would say, well, it's a collaborative decision, but ultimately um, you've got a, a in the guidance, it's described as a single individual leader who's yeah. really kept responsible for these things and, and often in, in reality, very small staff. It, in reality, it will end up being Bill McCarthy, I would have thought, mm -hmm. the, the Northwest Regional Director. Kind of flows up to the regions. Yeah, I think there's quite a lot of uh, mentions of the Regional Director kind of... Uh, signing things off in the, in the planning guidance, which is probably quite important. Um, Rebecca Annabella, any observations from the patch into ICTPs, ICS? They all re STPs ready, fired up to become integrated care systems from, from next year? Oh, a, a, a lot of, uh, a large part of my geographical patches, they've got... Uh, in the West Midlands. West, in the West Midlands, their performance uh, problems. You've got Shrewsbury, for example, largely that, mm. that will be... Um, focusing on that maternity scandal, I, I think um, integration mm. and ICS in um, uh, whatever fully fledged integration uh, yeah. ICS it means is probably far away. Um, um, they've not got their reconfiguration kicked off. The issue yet. there is kind of a credibility. Can you credibly give yeah. some people a badge, even though actually none of the you know Lancashire is a terrible A and E performance, <laughs> but the, they have they are an ICS. But can you sort of credibly hand out a kind of a, a you're doing well type ICS badge to a, to a system that's got real serious quality problems? Like and that? the relationships there have been uh, between commissioners and the acute trust have been bad for so long. Um, they they might be improving with the with a new management team that's coming in, but they still um, that system at least is a long way off. Um, um, Staffordshire better situation um but i would say um uh, the commissioner's side particularly um um in terms of their finances mean um being a fully fledged ics being given that badge is um is is far away i think um uh they're they're gonna be under the i think they're likely to be under the the cosh of the of mm. the regional lead would be very Dale, much an ICS with conditions. Yeah. If, if that if that's the thing. Okay. Um. Yeah. I should probably finally. Uh. It should should mention that the guidance on that point does. It, it, it tries to go to this point of what is an ICS, what's it actually for, and talks about and says it should have two roles. One is about um service transformation, which although you might argue how successful. SDPs have been at that. They they are comfortable, largely comfortable with that role because that's what they were asked to be in in back in 2016. And then the other one is about performance management and says something about collectively managing their performance, which I think is still really dodging the question of what explicitly what um, are they, are they uh, managing the performance of their area or are they doing it collectively? It's a slightly different um, kind of kind of uh, definition, in my view. Um, We've um, come to the end of our half hour. Um, uh, thank you very much, everybody, for taking part. Thank you for tuning in. Tuning in. There's lots more analysis of the around the planning guidance on hsj.co.uk. So I'd love you to visit and give that a read and subscribe if you haven't already. 
and please subscribe to the podcast too and we'll be back next week for more thank you very much thank you